Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this awesome episode with Karen Blisnick, the principal trumpet with the St. Louis Symphony, among other things that we will learn in this uh, episode, I have a few things that I want to mention. First, do not forget to listen all the way to the end, past the outro, so you can get the secret message that our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum, will leave for all of us to hear. Also, I want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. It's been a year now since the COVID-19 pandemic has shut everything down, and we are still feeling the effects to this day. While it is possible to move about with a little bit more safety these days, it's still a good idea to be as safe as possible. In order to be able to serve their customers while acknowledging the need for safety, Houghton Horns has expanded their policies to include a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping on all new instruments and accessories. I've mentioned before that they have free in-person virtual equipment consultations to help you make the right choice. So pair that with multiple easy financing options when you do decide which instrument is right for you, terms and conditions apply, and it's clear that Houghton Horns is making it easier to test drive and purchase the best equipment during these uncertain times. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. So whether you are a beginner, student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you are looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I am incredibly excited to be having a conversation with Karen Blisnick, the principal trumpetist, trumpet player with uh, the St. Louis Symphony. She's also a lot, uh, done a lot of music education uh, with uh, music festivals and being able to speak to people about her story and her thoughts about things. And then also uh, a relatively new venture to my understanding of being uh, an audio engineer for her record label. So uh, this is exciting for me. I have been a long time admirer of Karen's playing. Um, so I am excited to be able to get to know Karen as a human being so I can become an admirer of Karen Blisnick as a human being. <laughs> um, this is great. I think everybody, you, it's just going to be a cool story. I can't wait for you guys to hear because um, she's just got like a unique path through things. So first of all, Karen, thank you so much for being willing to speak with me. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Ryan. This is cool. Absolutely. Uh, as always, we just get started with they take as far as far back as is relevant that you feel to help us get a sense of how you got started, some of your path through uh, your education. Um, we could talk about your audition path through that as well, all the way up to St. Louis, and then we'll pick it up there and see where it goes. 
Awesome. Yeah, I'm. It's kind of a longish story, but I guess we have a little bit of time. Let's do it. That's what a podcast is for. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am from the south side of Boston, Brockton, Massachusetts, um, and it is just a fabulous small city. Well, it's a fairly large city south of Boston um, with a large uh, music program, um, and that's. I have to admit that that is definitely the beginnings of of my uh, interest in music. That it was so available to me. Um, uh, not or, not orchestrally, but um, very much uh, brass playing and wind ensembles and different, uh, you know, marching band, uh, pit music. So all of that was access- accessible to me at a young age. And um, I mean, and when I say accessible, I could walk there, you know, from my from my <laughs> house and I would walk across the river and I would directly bump into the fine arts building of my uh, of my high school wow. when I was younger. And so and I would walk through that building every morning, drop off my trumpet and go to class and I would walk back out through that building every day. So I felt lucky to have that um, in a public school program. Um, my mentor there was uh, Vincent Macrina, who just retired after many years. I want to say I'm, I might get this wrong, but I somewhere around like 50 years teaching wow. as an educator there. He's also a trumpet player. Um, so he was my private teacher as well. Um, and, you know, and that trickled down. So it was good elementary programs and uh, junior high school programs as well. Getting the opportunity to solo, you know, playing trumpeters lullaby in seventh grade or eighth grade, you know, is a big deal um, and informative uh, at at that time for me. Um, so that's, it's definitely started there. My dad, uh, is a trumpet player. Um, he, uh, he was in the, uh, the Navy band, um, as well as uh, part of the Boston Crusaders. Uh, and I, <laughs> I wrote this down because I always have to ask him. It was in 65 and 66 that he was there. Um, because the people that are, you know, the Crusaders are like, I wonder what year he was in the Crusaders, you know, because <laughs> oh. I think it's, a, it's, it's their own mini cult. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, in a good way, because I think he learned a lot. But I remember hearing him speak about it um, when he was younger, and uh, that was inspiring to me. He had this king flare, and he would keep it in his closet, and it was locked, and I wasn't—it was silver, right? You know, so mm-hmm. like all of us start with these— um, brass instruments. Uh, mine happen to smell particularly of mothballs because I did borrow it from my neighbor, <laughs> who is Brian Scanlon, who is now actually a lead trumpet player um, for Tommy Dorsey and um, uh, the Brian Setzer Band. Wow. Uh, he tours with lots of different uh, yeah jazz groups. And uh, it just so happened that I started on his trumpet and just so much pined for my dad's um, silver king flare. And so uh, he did tell me that, you know, if you practice enough and, you know, you get to this point um, where you feel like this is uh, something you want to do, you know, we'll consider you being able to play my instrument. It's like, oh, this is great. So I had a small little, you know, thing to shoot for when yeah, I was younger. Yeah. Um, but uh, my sister was a clarinet player. Um, so that was also surrounding me musically. Um, I, that seemed like... Like it had too many buttons, <laughs> so I definitely don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> um, but I would hear Brian um, Scanlon practicing across the street, all of his lead stuff for the jazz ensemble that was at the high school. That was prior to me even picking my instrument. So I think that was also inspiring to me as well. Um, so that's maybe the some of the beginnings of it. Um, that's amazing. Like, yeah. what a interesting. <laughs> you're just like you said. Just that's a pretty accurate way. You're just surrounded by it, like yeah. from an early age and. I think it's cool, you know, having that that I aspire to my my dad's instrument, you know, that it kind of would possibly encourage you to practice at an age where like I was not 
I wasn't practicing heavy, you know, when I was in yeah. like, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade and stuff like that. I didn't really make that decision, I think, till I was like a junior and started to take it more seriously. So, yeah, um, I, think, I think it was convenient to have, you know, a, a lot of the kids that are my age, too. That was kind of the cool thing to do, you know. So I had that one buddy. Um, his name was Michael Grayer. And he we would, you know, just kind of constantly vie for the top spot in the different ensembles. And, sure. um, and I think that that, you know, gentle um, competition, when, even when I was younger, was something that can help propel you. Um, but, I mean, you know, thank you, music programs. It's the only, like the major thing I want to say for that. Yeah. Did you... I mean, like I just said, for me, around junior year was like, I saw this concert. It was a jazz band concert. And I, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, this is what I want to do. It's ironic. There was a jazz band concert and I now play in an orchestra. But just seeing that level of excitement, that level of energy, it kind of that was the moment I remember deciding this is something I think I would like to try to do. Before that, it was just a fun thing to do with my friends. So did you at an early age feel that you were pushed or pushed like you felt a push to do that or was it later like when did you kind of want to take it more seriously yeah i mean i think it started a little bit as community right you know in high school you're trying to find your space so i think it's kind of started with a little bit of that um i ended up majoring in trumpet performance at boston university um and when i finally went into that program i realized there was so much to learn. <laughs> you know, I just had a B-flat trumpet. Um, and uh, I remember, well, this is interesting because there's just so many steps along the way that you don't realize how informative they were to you. Um, but I would, uh, prior to auditioning for college, I got a lesson with Pete Chapman, who was the former uh, second trumpet player of the Boston Symphony. Peter, he's the best. Yeah, he's so great. <laughs> and uh, he, he, man, he just threw me so many bones uh, in such a wonderful way. Um, I remember going to um, play for him because I was curious if I was even uh, within you know, a competitive nature with anyone that was in the professional field. You know, like, is, is this something that I might be able to do? It's kind of just asking prior mm -hmm. to launching yourself into four years of, uh, of college experience. And uh, he was very helpful to me, you know, even just in explaining kind of some of the basics of the fact that in the orchestra, they don't actually play the notes that are on the page. They're transposing and they're playing it on this instrument, which you don't even own. So a lot of these other things <laughs> that were popping up to me that I remember just being intrigued by it all um, and fascinated by watching them perform as a unit and kind of just uh, accomplishing these larger works together. I remember that sounding inspiring. The first concert that I went to was a pops concert. You know, the, um, the, the BSO, some, they take out all their chairs um, and they put out these cabaret tables on the main floor. And my dad happened to work for the John Hancock building. And I think, if I'm right, he won some tickets for our family. And we, we won tickets in like the very last row, you know, mm -hmm. but we had a cabaret table. And it was the, one of the biggest experiences that I remember from being young and going to the Boston Symphony. Um, uh, so, oh, gosh, where is I even <laughs> going with that? I guess you were just asking specifically if there was like a performance. And so I remember that one. Um, but then I knew like I need to have I need to know whether or not, you know, I, I'd be able to do this. So then sitting down with Peter and playing for him, um, he kind of prepared me to audition for NEC um, and a couple of the other schools that were in the Boston area. Um, and I ended up really getting along with Terry Everson, who ended up being my teacher for my undergrad um, predominantly. And, um, 
you know, we were talking a little bit earlier, but soloistically, uh, Terry Everson is just could melt your heart. Yeah. <laughs> he, he really knows how to spin musical phrases so that you, I think, can feel the depths of the emotions in this music. And so um, having spent four years around him uh, and even thinking at that time, you know, like, hmm, okay, maybe I can do this. I had doubled in, um, double made, or I guess had a minor in computer science as well because I was like, all right, I need a safety here. I'm not totally sure. Mm. You know, after Peter had said that that he thought that I was competitive, got into this environment, um, I was like, okay, we'll see. Um, and so, you know, studying with Terry for a while, that was great. I was thinking maybe I want to be a soloist. You know, this is something, and I've seen a couple other people do this solo route. But then as I think I started to realize what that life looked like, it didn't totally align with what I kind of had hoped for, which is, which is you know, something a little bit more stable where I live in one place and it's not to, to bring down the soloistic life. And perhaps that is a majority of it. Maybe you're home even more than I thought you would be right. um, if as a soloist. But at the time, I was like, you know, having um, some something that resembled a, a regular job, um, Monday to Friday-ish, yeah. well, <laughs> you know, I think say, is, sounded a little bit more attractive <laughs> to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then I, uh, I sought out uh, Tom Rolfs. He's, you know, mm. at the time was associate principal yeah. of the Boston Symphony. And he happened to be uh, adjunct faculty or whatever the title he had at the time for BU. So he had no students, but he was on the roster. And so I was like, I need to figure out how I can, you know, start to work with him. So as of my senior year, it worked out for me. Um, I got to study with Terry Everson and Tom Rolfs. Um, and I would be studying solo repertoire with Terry and orchestral repertoire with Tom. And wow, I had just... That was that was a very important turning point for me orchestrally because I I again still didn't totally understand that you know when you're in college you're given like three or four months to prepare a Hindemith symphonic metamorphosis like you're lucky if you have three or four hours to look at it you know um, in 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 a real world situation where the turnaround is you're performing on Sunday and then rehearsing again on Tuesday you know right, exactly um, and so uh, it was in. in it was important for me to learn through Tom that he would he would deliver me a score to an orchestral piece, you know. So he'd, you know, we'll say Pines of Rome. That's one I can definitely remember. I'm like, oh, I know Pines. <laughs> you know, it's the solo, off-stage solo. No, it's not the off-stage <laughs> solo. It's everything on the first page and a half that will, like, really blow your mind. And then the most powerful music that you can ever hear um, at the end. Sure. And so um, I, I have to say uh, that was... Oh, it was so good for me to to sit down and have to learn full scores. Um, that helped me a lot, I think, going forward too with audition prep because I was learned learned quickly that you don't just prepare the, you know, the short excerpt that uh, you continuously hear or that even someone else has determined is the most challenging part of the piece <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, right. however it is that we choose excerpts. Um, and so uh, after that, I went uh, on to Northwestern for my master's um, for two years. Um, and I think I honed my skills in those two years for preparing for uh, auditions. And again, I don't know that I I couldn't trade a single day back because I think I needed them all. Um, mm -hmm. I don't I can't say that I had much orchestral experience truly until about you know my junior senior year of even still you know of college. Um, and then my two years in my masters. Um, was a lot of what I needed. I was subbing in a couple small orchestras, like 
Southwest Michigan and South Bend Symphony um, and, you know, obviously gigging around and just performing. I didn't have a car, so I would go around on my bike and bring it on the train just to play a gig in the middle of nowhere, Chicago area. And it was, you know, we all hustled. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but I needed it all, and I'm glad that I did it. Um, I... uh, after two years of uh, being at school at Northwestern, surrounded by just awesome trumpet players. I was going to say, you were there. I mean, I was there at a good time, too, you know, yeah, like you pretty were. much everybody. You... I, was in, I was 2010 to 2012. Okay, cool. I was so my, six to eight. Yeah, my year was like Steve Woomert and yep. Stuart Stevenson and Chris yep. Larios. And yeah, uh, gosh, a great... there's a number. But you yeah. had like Mike and Ethan Right? Yep. Were you there yep. with Matt, too? Uh, Matt was there when I took my audition. He he was gone by the time that I, I actually yeah. started school there. Um, but, yeah, no, just wonderful. Um, Brandon Eubank, Carrie Schaefer, you know. Um, Jeff Strong, Mike, was he there, Jeff too? Jeff Strong. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I thought you had said that already. Yeah. Um, great. You know, just to be surrounded by so many people that are aspiring towards the same thing. But you know what? You could still feel the love. And that was what was so cool about it. You know, like it really didn't feel um, as kind of cutthroat as some stuff can actually even feel, you know, having been in school there. Um, It's just the level, uh, the bar was just high. You know, there was just an expectation um, of... And I wouldn't even say expectation of excellence because there was a lot of great, but preparation. You know, everyone just worked hard. Um, and I'd say that a lot of people launched themselves into good things because of that. Uh, yeah, this is an interesting point of reflection for me. And yeah. I, I do try to take every opportunity to do this because Please. the platform that I have now is all about, you know, really going for it and preparing. Yeah. And and it's, I mean, there's a lot more to it, but just even framing it like that, I do this in opposition to how I was at that time, Yeah, which was there's just, uh, I could play at a level that didn't require me to give every single thing I had to give to be able to basically play along. You know what I mean? There was, mm-hmm. I, I think I had a good ear. I think there was an aptitude that was happening that just I was given at birth, right? Like a level of understanding how to synthesize these kinds of things. And, and so I didn't. I mean, I saw everybody and I worked hard. I practiced a lot, you know, but it wasn't like I'm going to prepare for every ensemble rehearsal. I'm going to prepare for every solo class. I'm going to prepare for every orchestral excerpt class. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to reflect back up on that time and and really believe that I put a lot into it, but then to reflect back and see that like there's so many so many things I didn't do that you hear people talking about that they yeah. did do and they and like that was the culture. So I'm just kind of curious for you to reflect back on that time, and um, I mean, do, obviously, if you're just if you're talking, sorry for the long diatribe here, but if you're talking in this way, that must mean that you were part of that culture of preparing a lot. Did you feel behind it all, coming from a place of like I didn't know as much orchestrally as maybe I felt like I could or should have known? So I feel like I'm working this hard to catch up a little bit. Or did you feel that the culture of being prepared was sufficient for you to do it? Or was your aspirations for future drive and future, you know, success enough of a drive? Was it all three? I'm just kind of curious where your yeah. your drive for that came from. Yeah, well, you can remind make sure that I answer all three of them. <laughs> all right, I, I just um, kind of it's a it's a, a multifaceted way of asking yeah. where did the drive for, for preparation come from? Yeah. Um, so 
I remember my very first lesson sitting down with Barbara Butler. Maybe everyone has a very similar one. Um, But she asks you, what job do you want? (laughs) Like, what is the job that you want? Where do you aspire to be? Um, I think that sets a little bit of the tone. Um, And and it was exactly the tone that I wanted um, at that time, too. It is, uh, I wanted to learn all of the things that I could possibly learn about that. Um, It was exciting to prepare the music and to demonstrate it. It was excited to, um, I was excited to learn about this thing that I didn't know and get the experiences for the very first time. Um, And then having, you know... (laughs) Being surrounded with so many people that kind of knew how it, <laughs> I don't, maybe you've even heard this term, the how it goes, you know, the the concept of that. Um, I think I was just constantly inspired by the, truly the people around me. I mean, and then we'd all, you know, slam in a car. Mike Martin had this tiny little red Civic and he'd be like, hey, you know, there's cheap tickets down at, C- you know, CSO's playing. Let's all slam in the car and get down there. And so... I don't know. It's it to me. I still look back at it as community more than anything. Um, I really felt like I belonged to something, and that belonging um, also came with um, the support of all those people as well. I mean, I I really felt like everyone cared um, when you had something coming up, and and it's a very small community that anyone can even understand what that means, you know? Um, it's like your parents want to support you and they love you, you know, and I was great, I'm grateful for that, but they still don't totally know what it is that you're doing um, in order to get to these places. So um, the culture of working hard um, is kind of been something that's always been in my life, in my family, um, whether, uh, you know, I, I'm also reflecting on that part of my life currently um, <laughs> and can probably go into that into pretty serious depths because I think that 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 is a mindset that everyone should reflect on at some point in their life and ask themselves if they're truly happy operating at the speed in which they're operating at <laughs> is the best way I can put that. Um, and uh, I, I do think that at some point, because the field is so competitive, that there is some need for it at some point, depending on the type of person that you're coming from as well, right? Because we all, we're not all cut from the same exact mold. But to me, at some point, I needed to learn all the rep. I needed to learn the ways of the instrument and learn the norms of the culture and learn the norms of the music and historical content. There was just so much. And I kind of couldn't get enough of it. So there, there's a part of me that at that time, you know, um, that that was exactly what I wanted. And so uh, I don't I don't look back at it with sore feelings. Um, however, I do constantly assess um, currently <laughs> if I need to be operating the same way I did when I was mm. 23, you know. Um, and so yeah. maybe that's a good way to, to round that out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have my thoughts, which I'm about to share with you in a second. Yeah. But what you said about assimilating information and, and just getting so much of it. I remember when I was getting ready for the Indianapolis, the finals for Indianapolis. And gosh, I mean, just the access you had that I tried to take advantage of. Chris Martin was coaching us on a on a um, trumpet ensemble thing. Mm-hmm. And that was like on a Saturday. And then the following Wednesday, I was putting together this brass section, right? You, we could do that. I think you came back to Northwestern when I was there to do this for Atlanta or say, yeah. I can't remember which job. Um, but anyway, I did something like that for Indianapolis mm-hmm. to play through the finals, reper- the big repertoire. Mm-hmm. And I just 
casually was like, Chris, are you free Wednesday at like 10 o'clock? And he's like, yeah. And so Chris came and played second to me, which was just like a surreal experience. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's such a surreal experience to have the principal trumpet of Chicago. Like I would play something, he'd lean over and he'd be like, well, like think about try this, do this, you know, whatever. It's pretty cool. And I remember trying to assimilate as much information as possible. And I remember at one point I was talking to Dr. Thompson about it. And I was saying like, I want to figure this thing out and then do this and then do that. And she's like, well, you don't want like too much information, you know, like, and I I straight up looked at her and I was like, yes, I do. I I felt like I was so bullheaded about like, I knew what was right and what I wanted. Now, Here's the problem, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that's the only way I saw myself, right? Like I did not take care of myself. I was basically like play hard, party hard, Mm -hmm. just could not wrap my head around how to healthily manage the level of stress or expectation I was putting on myself to succeed. And I mean, I've learned how to deal with this since then, but the level that I was sort of pushing myself, this is something I've talked about with Stuart Stevenson and Steve Woomer a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious for your... Um, for your perspective too, on like, what does balance look like when you are pushing yourself really hard with the expectation? Like, is it acceptable to sort of put some of you aside while you're striving for these kinds of things? Or is it possible to achieve at the same level or the same degree with a level of balance? If so, what does that look like? I'm kind of curious for your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think I'll be the first person to say that I don't have it figured out, you know, <laughs> like I don't have it 100% figured out. Um, I would I would love to hear from more people that feel that way <laughs> um, because maybe that would be inspiring. I um, when you know, when I'm when I'm performing in the orchestra full time and you're having week after week of things coming down the line and sometimes, you know, um, realistically, two or three different concert programs going on at the same time. Um it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to do that. Um, I do the basic thing that I can do for myself, which is uh, concert preparation so that I know that when I get on stage that I can be as calm as possible. And that usually entails, um, uh, you know, a nap <laughs> and then a jog and then something fairly healthy, you know, about an hour and a half to an hour before the concert. But I'm leaving, you know, the concert's at 8. I'm leaving at 7 o'clock so that I can go up to the warm-up space and get myself in the right mindset, listen to whatever motivational, anything that I need to listen to, um, and spend some time by myself before I step on stage um, in a meditative way. Um, And, you know, those are the preparatory things that I do in order to stay as balanced as I can in my head in order to do that um, every, uh, every you know, a couple, whatever, I guess, three nights a week. Um, but, um, you know, I've, I've challenged myself in lots of different ways um, in order to try and get closer to the something that feels balanced. You know, you can, you can talk about all the different facets of that, right? We could talk a little bit um, about practicing. And so, like, if you're in the orchestra and you're, you know, doing something super intense, you've got to find a way in the practice room to balance that out. Um, I, it's hard to say though, that even that, right, is like, how much time do we even have for that? When you really, the extra time that you have, you maybe even need to be preparing for something that's coming up in two weeks. You know, it's just like, do I have time to do this? And I mean, I make all the efforts that I can. I think what, what, 
it feels like you're driving a car and like things are kind of falling off a little bit as you're driving it along, <laughs> like through a seven, sim- you know, symphony season. Sorry, yeah. and like you're like, ah, okay. So then that's maybe a little bit more how I tend to things. Where I'm like, okay, like my multiple tonguing. Um, I have something that's coming up. I personally call it like daily doses. So I got to figure out what's coming up that I need to make sure that I have um, in my package um, of things that, or or maybe your color palette, you know, that you have accessible to you. And so I think I look for balance musically on my trumpet, you know, the physicality of the trumpet, um, a little bit that way. Um, and that's been helpful uh, so that, you know, it definitely curbs any anxiety of knowing, you know, different multiple tonguing excerpts are coming up and you need to get on top of that, you know, so that you have a, a wide range of abilities available um, to that speed. But same thing goes for like style stuff, you know, like playing, um, you know, um, What's the uh, West, like West Side Story or and then you can go as far as like any piccolo trumpet stuff or um, rotary. Each one of these has their own category of things that require special attention. So for me, it's more like looking down the line to see what's coming up and how can I slowly start to digest the pieces that I need to have. Uh, accessible to me when they come up. So for me, it's more like preparation in order to keep mentally and physically balanced. Um, but, you know, when I'm talking about my my own human being body and whatnot, um, yeah, that's, it's hard, right? Because, and the next level that, I don't know if you've ever experienced much of this, but I was in the Santa Fe Opera for a little while, and that's like a whole nother game because sometimes they're starting concerts at like nine that don't get out to like two. And so there, it, it's, yeah, un, insane. Um, you play Tales of Hoffman starting at 9 p.m. I mean, you're going all night. And <laughs> it really, you almost become like slightly nocturnal. So you have to be able to um, to tend to that feeling, you know, and giving yourself compassion on the other side that winding down at 2 a.m. isn't necessarily an easy thing to do. Being careful not to then just um, depend on other things to calm you down, you know, whether it is, you know, drinking, smoking, whatever the thing is that people go towards and just being aware that you know um that this this job really can shake it shake it up for you um and so you know you can say all of the things but i would love to say drinking enough water getting enough sleep but then the next level for me too is that i've noticed is the social element about it the people that you're around are people that work friday saturday and sunday you know and like half of more, the majority of the world is working from Monday to Friday. So it, it actually even affects your relationships that you can have. Um, and so I've just noticed, um, all the different ways, um, in which (laughs) truly that it can become unbalanced. And I don't say that I have it all figured out. Um, (laughs) but I'm, I'm definitely trying. And I think it really starts with just being aware. Sorry, like starting to take mental notes of the different habits that you're getting yourself into and ask, you know, is that exactly how I want, want, that to go in my life. Um, and so maybe that's, you know, learning, learning self-compassion has been a huge element of something that I've been working on probably the past, like just couple years, um, with a lot of things that have been going on in my life and for the whole world. Um, but you know, self-compassion is not something I don't think that's taught very much in, uh, music education, um, and just the mental health side of it. And I've, uh, I could probably talk at length about how important I think that truly is to being a performer, um, but I just hinted at it right now. Well, it's so interesting, right? Because as performers, we recognize how important overall balance is and that yeah. we're not just 
I'm only spending time in the practice room, but rather we have these other outside sources like scores or recordings or maybe even another discipline that we love. It could be arts related. It could be not arts related. You could get really like me, you get really into working out and powerlifting and stuff, mm -hmm. but like just some way for overall balance. I don't think anyone would argue that that can and, and sort of infect your musicianship in a positive way. But in school, it feels like you don't have any time for that. In school, at least for me, it feels like if you are sacrificing possible practice time for something that could be seen as, I mean, and it's interesting too, because like if I just substitute all the time I partied and drank with like working out or like doing healthy things for me, I would have had plenty of time, right? So mm -hmm. I will happily take my own choices and say I could have done different, better. But I think it's a real thing that people struggle with, which is this idea that we sh are essentially, we have like four years to practice as much as we possibly can because we once we get out, we have no teachers anymore. I'm like, what does growth look like? And so it can feel like we can't waste any time, but like what does productivity look like actually versus just spending tons of hours practicing, which I would not call incredibly productive. That's kind of, you know, being able to disassociate ourselves from this idea that we have a limited amount of time to figure it out or we're never, ever going to get there. <laughs> like we, in my mind, long-term, like lifetime growth is really what we should be trying to establish. And I mean, this is like counter what we do, right? But the idea then of trying to figure out how to infuse healthy practice habits, healthy life habits, healthy social habits, all these kinds of things. Uh, at a time when you're 18 and you're on your own for the very first time and you're going to make all the mistakes you're ever going to make in your life away from your parents. So it's a very <laughs> precarious thing. And I don't, I feel like I just mess it up a lot, you know? <laughs> so I'm just trying to figure out how would I say things that might give people who are 18 right now. You know what I mean? I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because you hinted at something that I uh, very much identify with. And it, it's the feeling of okay, I've been in school for six years and now I don't have someone telling me every single week how I need to play this excerpt, <laughs> you know? Um, and kind of ended up having to sort of devise a little bit of a way um, to make that work for me because it's almost like I was addicted to, <laughs> in some strange way, someone giving me the feedback. It's like I outsourced the feedback to someone else and didn't necessarily hone the tool of, you know, personal feedback. Obviously, we all have these like, you know, these voices, but the expectation of the end all be all this person decides how I play this excerpt. Like that's a little that's, it's a little absurd to think about if you really think it on the grand scheme. Of course, we need these people to help us, you know, get started on the path and whatnot. But they are not the pe they're not the people that show up on stage um, to perform these auditions. And so that might be how I could definitely relate in that way. Um, I in my master's, I went down to um the Spoleto Music Festival, um, like the last quarter of Northwestern, and um, and didn't have my lessons uh, weekly with Barbara any longer, and was performing in Spoleto in a way that kind of felt like a professional gig. They do that, they do it in a pretty regular way, um, lots of performances, lots of rehearsals, and um, was was feeling really good about that. But the principal trumpet audition for the Charleston Symphony was happening while I was down at the music festival. And um, I was like, I'm going to practice this stuff every day. I'm going to practice all these, you know, giving myself a routine of what I wanted to do um, in preparation for that. And um, eventually realized that it was just as important for me to record myself and perf and and 
and to listen back to that and then to find something that identified with me musically, like really deep down in my soul, whoever it was, whatever musician it was that was performing this excerpt or solo and um, creating that method of just listening directly. So for me, that the time I chose the Phil Smith excerpt CD, I mean, it was just so useful for something like that, especially um, at those slightly smaller um, auditions where the lists aren't so long is maybe specifically what I'm talking about, less to do with the orchestra, um, where almost all of the excerpts showed up on that list. Um, and it was such a realization, though, that I could actually educate myself in this way if mm. I recorded and then listened back. And then eventually I wasn't just this, which is kind of how I sometimes feel about it, orchestras, like this actor where someone tells me how to do everything and I just execute it. And it turned it more into I get to be the creative choice and how some of these things go. Um, and that was a, a a pretty big moment where I feel like I sort of took over my trumpet playing for myself. Um, I chose to go orchestrally with it, but, um, you know, it was a little bit freeing um, that moment where you realize that we, um, we're given these tools for so long and I think we think we don't have them when we get out of school, but you, you really do. And the element of, you know, people talk about it in nature, you know, like mother bird and baby bird, like teaching. It's like that element about it where you're like, all right, so... Perhaps if I were to press, if I were to press play on Phil Smith's, you know, pictures at an exhibition behind the screen, and there was a way to make it sound like a real trumpet player, we kind of know that that would be something that would be attractive for a panel to hear, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not saying played exactly like that, but now we have a blueprint um, of how orchestral music has historically played, and now I get to put my creativity and art on it. Um, so that was. You know, it, what you said just kind of like put that um, light bulb off because I, I feel like I could relate to that directly. Yeah, I mean, it's a big... I came at it from... I worked out and I learned about powerlifting programming because I just got to this point where I was so disillusioned with like, I can't get better. I don't know. I, I can play the trumpet well because I did a lot of work before that, but now I don't know how to like get better. And I can assign myself really difficult recitals and try to push my limits that way. But that's just like taking my skills and applying them to a really extreme circumstance, not necessarily physically seeing actual development. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, with the systems and the things that I have now, I could, I've like seen development in the last year of my life because yeah. it's not just that I had the time to do it, it's that I was structuring my work in a certain particular way, you know? And so it's a very similar thing. I sort of came to this place where it was like, but I, I had to like go learn about a completely separate discipline and then apply it. You know what I mean? It's just interesting because I had some of the best teaching you can get, but I, I maybe just relied so heavily on people telling me what to do that I never thought I should, I could try to own this process too, you know? So every mm -hmm. time I took an audition, it would be like, well, it's time to go play for Barbara. Not like I can <laughs> do this on my own. And maybe just, it's like, Barbara's going to tell me how to win this audition still years and years and years after I left. So um, I, if you're interested, we could get into some of your orchestral trajectory, maybe things you learned through various uh, auditions or jobs. Um, I'll leave this to the level that you would like to talk about it. I yeah. know that it's, yeah. it's like okay. a up and a down kind of trajectory yeah, for you. A little so. Yeah, um, a little diversion, I guess, in, in a good way. Um, uh, yeah, so starting with, um, so I guess we were just talking about the Charleston Symphony. I was there for um, for a year, uh, and I, I did win that job um, while I was down at Spoleto. 
um, and went on to play there for a year. And I lived with two wonderful people in downtown Charleston, and we started a band. And I got to, <laughs> and that was, I, I, it was such a wonderful memory in my brain because it was such a short period of time. Um, but uh, it, it feels like it was. Uh, many more years because of the connections that I made with some of those people um, and and probably in some way propelled me to some of the interests that I have today that we'll talk about in just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, uh, so after the Charleston Symphony, admittedly, like I was just constantly looking forward. Like what was, what was, you know, what was the next best thing that I can try um, and aim for? Because I, at first, admittedly, didn't even think that that was going to be, um, you know, what I was going to be able to do. I mean, I remember it blowing my mind that someone was giving me this, you know, this opportunity. Um, I mean, I was in the finals with Mary Bowden and Chris Coletti. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was it was like a fabulous group of people, um, all uh, still so competitive, you know, in a, in a wonderful way and, and supportive. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that, so that was... Um, Oh, man, that audition was just it's so funny, right? Because Charleston is made up of a bunch of small churches. And so they decided to um, to choose, you know, one of these churches on a random side street and happened to be, you know, like 100 something degrees. Their AC, of course, went out, you know, mm-hmm. like there's always that story. And it just happened <laughs> to be that that church was right next to a fire station. So like in the middle of most of your excerpts, they had to stop you so you could start again because the fire engines, wow. the doors were open. So the fire engines were going. By. Yeah. No. And I mean, like my warm up space was like enough space for me to stand up up and lift my trumpet over a fax machine, you know, like it was, it was, I mean, I, I, I really, I care about them all deeply, but it's just always funny to like, look at back. I don't know that I ever talk about things like this and, you know, to this depth any longer, but you know, for the people that are listening and taking auditions, you're going to run into a bunch of things. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so I was just working my way up. Um, and so next was the, uh, Charlotte symphony. And I was there for about, um, a year and a half and that orchestra playing principal um, as well. And that was, again, so now we have slightly more weeks. We have a slightly larger orchestra. Um, and uh, the hall was, you know, slightly larger as well. And, yeah, no, it was – that was an enjoyable experience. Um, I They don't have summer season there Um or they do, and it's optional. Um, and so uh, my first year there, I went back actually to the Pacific Music Festival, um, and I did the whole Pacific Music Festival while I was still in the Charlotte Symphony and have wonderful memories of, like, touring with MTT playing Mahler 5 in Japan. Mm. You know, like, just insane. Um, there's a video of it somewhere out there um, that I, uh, I've been trying to track down. Um, but, yeah, just constantly trying to uh, get all the experience um, and to really just work your way through the repertoire. I think at that age, you just kind of can't get enough. You know the pieces and you've heard of them and you're just, I don't know, for me, biting at, you know, chomping at the bit to to perform some of these in an orchestra. So um, I did that. But the next next, uh, summer um, that I was in the Charlotte Symphony, I had a... uh, Actually, I guess I was there for a little over, almost two years. Anyway, um... Uh, was given the opportunity to audition for the Santa Fe Opera um, and uh, ended up flying to the, I'll never forget this, I flew because they auditioned uh, at the Milwaukee Symphony um, concert uh, venue. And when I got, when I landed in Chicago, I remember, I don't know if you have one of those brass bags, but so you get all the trumpets, um, you know, aligned up in there and my mouthpiece um, case was separate 
Of course, I landed in Chicago and forgot all my mouthpieces in Charlotte. Um, so called up Chris Martin because, <laughs> um, you know, he was my closest contact in downtown Chicago at that point. I was mm-hmm. like, do you have a mouthpiece that is close to this and another mouthpiece that's close to this that I can go audition on? And he did. And I still actually, to this day, I, I think they were a little bit of his, you know, mouthpiece mutts um, where he, <laughs> he was like, wasn't sure if he liked them any longer. So I got, I had a couple of those, took the audition and ended up winning that audition. Um, and uh, that was a unique audition because um, it's a very small group of people um, and it was without a screen and um, most everyone had um, either, you know, driven in or flown in or something for that audition because Santa Fe Opera is just put put together by a bunch of people that are, um, I would say, even international musicians. Um, and so uh, that's that was an incredible experience. I still have such a fondness for the Santa Fe Opera. Um, it's a 10-week music festival that happens in the summer. The concert venue is just stunning, the Opera House. Um, it is indoor-outdoor theater, so the sides are open, and the back of the, uh, the hall is the backstage is, has the opportunity to be completely open so that you can see the sunset moments before the opera begins, which is why they, you know, I when I said earlier, them starting at 9 p.m. Um, and, you know, they have the subtitles in a bunch of different languages and people come in just to see, you know, the opera for one week on vacation. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful place. So, you know, feel so lucky to have um, done that at some point in my life. Um, I was, uh, I then went on to the... Um, I could keep that job, luckily, while I was in the Charlotte Symphony. Um, I did the same also while I was in the Atlanta Symphony. Um, I went on to play associate principal for, I think, like two and a half years. Um, uh, Tom Hooten hired me, so I actually got to play with Tom Hooten for a little while, and we became really good friends through that whole experience. Um, uh, you know, if if we're if this podcast is talking about challenging, that was that was probably one of the more challenging orchestras for me to perform in, and also was a good um, a good moment in time for me to reflect on, um, you know, some of the stuff that we were talking about before this, which is, you know, what do I what do I really want out of this, and is this something that's hundred um, percent fulfilling for me personally and musically, um, and uh, yeah, I. Looking back at that experience, there were parts of it that I learned a whole bunch from. Um, I I guess I was there. Tom Hooten won principal in the L.A. Phil while I was there. So I um, ended up having to play principal for a summer season um, for him. And um, and then I think Dave Vonderheide ended up coming in to play principal um, while I was there my last year there. Um, it's it's weird because while I was there, there were so many <laughs> different trumpet players. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Tashone, Mike Myers. Um, it's like it was a slight revolving door. Um, so I got to play with a bunch of people. Nothing. It didn't really feel like with much regularity um, while I was in that orchestra. Um, I actually did not end up receiving um, tenure in that orchestra while I was there. And I remember that being really tough um, because there were just lots of different, um, uh, like, I don't know how to explain it other than I was getting different opinions from lots of different people yeah. to the extent that at one day I was celebrating my potential tenure, then the next day I did not have tenure. And so there, 
um, looking back at it, I still don't really know what happened. Um, luckily, I'm, I actually am friends with Robert Spano. Um, he ended up hiring me to be on um, faculty in Aspen for a few summers after that. So um, it, it was a good experience. And I remember I was completely heartbroken at the time um, and ended up, uh, you know, the ch- most challenging part truly was having to be in the orchestra from October and through the end of the season um, in that position while I was not tenured. Um, and, uh, you know, but as, um, I don't know if I want to say as luck will have it, but, uh, it worked out really well for me, um, because before I finished the season in the Atlanta symphony, I had one principal trumpet of the, um, St. Louis symphony. Um, and so it don't, it doesn't always, it doesn't really work out that way. And I can sure tell you, it did not feel like it was going to work out that way in the moment. Um. But, um, you know, and I can't say that I was not without fear moving on to another orchestra for a trial week. Um, there was a lot of um, there's a lot of fear around all of that looking back um, and just so grateful that I was received in such a welcoming way with uh, by the St. Louis Symphony, because I think that really kind of saved a little bit of my musical career, um, getting uh, getting into that orchestra and being surrounded by um, <laughs> love, really. Uh, there's just so much of that in that orchestra. Uh, and so so I'm very grateful for that experience. Um, yeah, and so I guess that's now we're back to the St. Louis Symphony, but it's um, it was not, you know, without uh, an entire <laughs> long path and journey um, prior to that. Yeah, I've been pretty open about my not getting tenure in Indianapolis as well. And I had to play from March until... It's so funny how the wording of these things work. Like when you don't get tenure, at least there, it's like supposedly another like... 60 days or something like that. And then your contract is up, but it was like, you know, we will, their letter was like, we are off willing to extend it all the way through the summer season or what I was like, thank you so much. That's, that's great. You know what it would have been better is tenure, but this is pretty (laughs) good too, I guess. I know. I guess you can't really complain about it, but it's challenging, you know? Yeah. And I remember, I mean, that started the longest three months of, of my life, right? Because Mm -hmm. What I felt, and I'm, I, I would love your thoughts on this because oh, yeah, I yeah. bet you will have some. What I felt like the hardest thing to do, I remember that very first question, I've said this a few times, the very first question I asked myself at that time was, like, who am I if I'm not principal trumpet in the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra? Mm. Like, this was, this was the thing that I was working for. This is the thing I was working towards with a goal of someplace like New York or Chicago or San Francisco or, you know, whatever major orchestra. And it's like, if I can't get tenure here, I'm never going to be able to succeed anywhere. And, you know, I had six auditions in a three-month period. Hmm. And um, at this job, Alabama, was the sixth one, right? So I was like, okay. Like, I was literally, the week before, I auditioned for Atlanta, like, utility and I did stuff like, you know, even in that even in that time, I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? But I remember preparing for that job. And one of the pieces we had to play was, uh, I wonder if Stuart Stevenson would remember this, if he's listening to this. But I played the Miraculous Mandarin, yeah. and I didn't ask them for the part, so I didn't have it. So I found a score on IMSLP that was unreadable. <laughs> and then I just, like, learned the part from that score. And I'm in the score, it's impossible to see, so I didn't know you're supposed to take your mute out. And so I just like played the whole excerpt with a mute kind of slow. And then that plus some stuff, Stuart was just like, I got some comments. He's like, yeah, I don't know like what you wanted us to do. Like (laughs) there's no, I mean, you just demonstrated you had no idea. It's like even in that moment, 
even in that moment of like, I will not have employment if I don't win one of these jobs, I still wasn't like, I'm going to go for it and do everything I possibly can. Like, it's, it's like kind of like hard to reflect upon that that's who I was at that point. You know, that I was still like afraid to give everything I had and because if I gave everything I had and then failed, then I was yep. just a failure, so to speak. But with Alabama, I remember being like, well, if I don't win this job, I'm going to have to like go move. I was literally, I was engaged at the time to a woman named Jenny. And I was like, I'm going to go to Kansas City and I'm going to make no money and I'm going to live with Jenny. And I <laughs> guess I'll figure that out. And I guess that's okay. Like I had sort of in that three months, like really dug deep to find out like, I guess there is a person under there, underneath principal trumpet of whatever orchestra, there's an actual person under there. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. who is that person? Because I've never acknowledged that person up until this time. I was like 25 or 26 years old. And that was my moment of like realizing this is not life or death. Like, yes, it's great to have employment, but you know, if you play well enough, hopefully you can piece together something, you know, there's other skills that I have that can be used. Like you start to realize some of these things and I stopped putting all of everything on an orchestral Gosh, track, yeah. right? And then yep. now it's coming to fruition all these years later where I'm actually able to, with some amount of confidence, step forward and do something different, which I know you're in a very similar boat too. And it causes a whole nother set of questions that you ask yourself. But to, that's like sort of my trajectory in that regard. So with that as sort of a frame, I'm kind of curious if you want to walk us through a little bit of what you felt like you were talking to yourself, how you were talking to yourself in the midst of not getting tenure in Atlanta, what St. Louis, you, are, you, you did hint at it. So there's already a little bit, but then how that's sort of like manifest itself in your, in your career after that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it, the initial, I remember the date, like that's how intense it was in my life, you know? Um, and I mean, it was the day after my birthday. Maybe that helps a little bit too, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I, uh, October 20th, you know, like I remember it and it's, uh, it took me a long time to like, th there's initial feelings of shame around it, you know? Um, and then there's also the having to receive, uh, of grief from your colleagues while you're at work. That's something that you don't totally expect. Um, your other colleagues grieving the fact that you won't be there any longer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there's some of that that was going on, but you know, I guess my small little uh, I don't really know how I did it. Um, but we had like a Halloween concert like the next day or two. Um, and I had already um, <laughs> submitted myself in like the Halloween costume contest or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> so ridiculous when I look back at it. Um, and I have a picture of it, which is another reason why I probably remember one of my dear friends, Jen Humphreys, who happens to now be in the St. Louis Symphony as well, which I, my heart is so happy. Um, we, uh, <laughs> I was super glue and she was a unicorn. Um, and we ended up winning the, uh, <laughs> like two days after not getting tenure in the orchestra, <laughs> I'm standing in front of the orchestra with a super glue costume on, which is like a cone on my head and a cape. So, um, <laughs> so <laughs> you can, it's laughable now. I'm so glad that I can laugh about it. Um, but it, it was tough. I mean, I, it messed it. I think it messed up my head a bit, quite yeah. a bit, admittedly, you know, like, cause I went into, I went into Charleston and probably Charlotte for a good majority of that. And even Santa Fe with this slightly fearless mentality. Um, and so when <laughs> what it feels like is someone's somewhat striking fear in you, yeah, you notice it. Um, mm -hmm. And so have had to do quite a bit of work on just acknowledging that um, in my life and um, kind of not trying to push it away, but trying to 
see it as something to grow in, you know, the direction of, of um, you know, whatever type of mental processes that we find ourselves in that are protection, you know, could be either self-deprecating or um, even, um, you know, self-sabotaging um, in some way. Uh, so, admittedly, I think that that was the beginning of my journey um, towards better even mental health practices um, uh, once I, I think I got to St. Louis um, because there was just a time period there where, yeah, there was, I was, cannot deny that I was definitely filled with doubt. But strangely, I don't think I ever doubted that I would do this still again. I didn't know what to, you know, to what capacity. Um, but I had my eye set on lots of different um, uh, opportunities. You know, I got to play in the LA Phil during that time, actually, which was really cool. So I remember, you know, going and playing for Tom Hooten. I did a red eye. I did a dumb thing. I flew in on a red eye for the Detroit Symphony Principal Audition. Um, it was just me and Hunter, I think, in the finals um, for that. Um, I mean, I don't do that. I don't recommend um, <laughs> doing that so that you can take another gig. Um, but, uh, you know, having my trial week, you know, with the St. Louis Symphony at that time was probably one of the scariest parts because it was on Saturday night and it just so happened that my trial week was not only on the radio live on Saturday night while we were playing Planets, and symphony psalms, um, but it was also videoed. It was live on on TV wow. as well. They had t yeah, and it's like it, they don't even do that that often, and it just <laughs> happened to be that week. Wow. So the level of stress that I had, I will admit, was very high at that time, um, and it, it's seemingly melt away when I got to be surrounded by my colleagues finally um, in this orchestra. Uh, came in with a lot of kind of underdog feels, which, you know, if you ever get those feelings like, ah, I'm, you know, potentially the the one at a disadvantage in this situation for some whatever reason that you're making that up in your head. I don't know. I say go, I say go with it because I feel like a lot of people when they're younger have those feelings and we slowly lose them as we get older um, because we have all of these expectations that other people have put on us. Um, and so, I don't know, I'll admit that eventually I got to a better mindset, but, it, you know, also, again, reminding anyone that might be listening to audition process conversation, which is I auditioned for the St. Louis Symphony three times. Like I was at this audition two other times in cattle calls and didn't even make it through the first round. Um, so there's something to be said also about either the processes and orchestras, you know, and the different ways that we can actually get to the product that we want, but also remembering that, you know, Oh, we have all run into our fair um, fair share of blockades in, in the road. Um, and, you know, there are still more that I'm currently dealing with. There are, I anticipate there will be more down the road, um, you know, but to emphasize what you're talking about and learning a little bit more about yourself throughout the process, um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've had the conversation, um, you know, with my own therapist, like, you... <clears throat> <laughs> you play the trumpet, you know, like calling yourself a trumpet player mm -hmm. is a very like internalizing sort of situation as opposed to externalizing it. And the idea that you play an instrument, much mm -hmm. like you paint a picture, you know, these, this art form where it's so close to the heart, I think it can cause some really interesting um, mental stresses about what, you know, um, your self-worth you know, and in direct correlation to how I've performed. And that is the stuff that I'm directly um, aiming at right now and trying to see when it happens, how it happens, be aware of when it's happening is step one. And then 
truly just (laughs) at the very beginning, basic stages, baby stages of it, just not letting it get out of hand, you know, just recognizing it and then deciding that, you know, much like meditation, when something else might come up in your head, you know, it's, I think you can apply that to performance anxiety as well. Um, And I have done even more so work because, you know, we talk about fight or flight in this way where people joke around about, oh, you know, you're going on stage, but you're not being attacked by a lion. Okay, sure. All right. So if that is potentially the feelings that I'm feeling, well, then what are the other um, images that I can insert that might combat it in a very similar way? And, you know, I, I talk to my students about highlight rails and having it completely fully flushed out memories of successes in order to perhaps just even just slightly divert this what could start to feel like a downward spiral towards something that is much more compelling um, of a of a uh, of a way of getting yourself to feel confident and um, even in potentially enjoy your performance, you know, which I, I don't even, <laughs> you know, we could even go down that pathway for a long, a, a long ways as yeah. well. Yeah, Gosh, there are like 10, dif- 10 different directions to take that. <laughs> and we don't have infinite time here. Of course not. Of course not. Yeah. So I'm going to pick the, the deepest one and we're going to go in that direction. <laughs> so I would argue that healthier mental health, like the way that you speak to yourself, developing like healthier habits, being able to manage stressful situations, um, being able to have had this conversation with you that you are, this is almost exactly the same way I talk about it, that I play the trumpet, I'm not a trumpet player. There you go. Right? A lot of these conversations for me came as a result of not getting tenure in Indianapolis. Mm. So therefore, I feel grateful for that experience. Right. It's hard. It's an interesting way to frame it. Right. And I think it's very counter to how we would normally have a relationship with that kind of experience. But if I would have gone through that, who knows where I'd be right now. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I would like to put it in your court and ask, like, do you have a similar relationship with that experience in Atlanta? Are you grateful for that experience and how it made you may possibly appreciate a place like St. Louis differently, how you've been able to speak to yourself, how you've been able to grow and manage your expectations and all that kind of stuff and and put some sort of, instead of this fearless attitude, your ability to manage and like grow into your fear and use that to help drive preparation or whatever. Like, do, do you, are you grateful for this experience or do you have different a different relationship with it? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm beyond grateful, honestly. <sighs> Only because I don't know... You know, you, you can't know how things would go if it was if it was different, right? So that's maybe first step. But um, I will, you know, f- be the first person to say that I think some of some of my still closest friendships are from some people that are still in that orchestra. You know, I will pick up the phone. I don't have all that many long distance relationships where I'll just pick up the phone and we'll catch up, you know, via phone. There's a few people in the orchestra um, uh, that way. But you know, admittedly, you know, Tom. Tom Hooten and Jen Murata are some of my dear friends um, now, and I don't know that I, if uh, I didn't have the experience that I would have that friendship, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, I uh, I think it's good for... <laughs> we're all suffering on some realm it, to, to some, some degree every single day, and I, I know that sounds almost borderline morbid because I'm actually a generally pretty happy person, um, or at least I... I I try to be. I make an attempt to be. And um, I like to look at 
try and make an effort to look at the positive side of things. That's just maybe a little bit of an outlook that I have in life. But um, I uh, I think all life experiences that are like this is like it's you, you're talking specifically about tenure. But I mean, I'm also thinking about, you know, I've had a rough year in my own personal, you know, relationship life. Um, and that also is something, you know, that I'm starting to learn gratefulness for. But man, it just doesn't happen in the moment, you know. So like if you're the best way I can put it right now is you feel like you're suffering right now from anything that that if time is like such a big factor, I think, in relieving that feeling. But if you don't recognize it, and even in the way that we're discussing right now, it's, you know, going out on a limb and it's not, it's, I will admit, talking about not getting in tenure in Atlanta is not the first thing that you really want to identify and you really <laughs> want to talk about. And you yeah. sure you feel that way about that, about Indianapolis. But if we don't recognize these feelings, then you don't really learn from them. And so um, out of the sake of of, you know, hopefully leadership in vulnerability, you know, I appreciate you going out on a limb and talking about it and hope that other people can feel the same way. Because if you feel like there's no other other option, that's where you end up, I think, backing yourself into a corner. Um, and if you don't give yourself other opportunities that perhaps are outside of this one task that you can do, um, then I think you're, you know, even going back even further to our conversation, um, need to have an, a healthier conversation in your brain about balance um, as to who you actually are. Uh, I totally agree with all that. I mean, it can be tricky for a person like me to talk about suffering because I'm sure people can look at me and be like, your life has got to be yeah. X, right? Yeah. And like right now, yeah, like my life is, is there's a lot of beautiful blessing in my life. My life is not necessarily like, quote, easy, mm -hmm. but it's not like I'm suffering to the same degree that I was suffering when I was depressed living in Indianapolis. You know, I'll, I'll paint this picture. I have not done an episode. I have a desire to do an episode about this, but I'll, I'll sort of give like a, a quick. So what you described about the community Northwestern, I think is why I was depressed in Indianapolis is because you lose that and you mm -hmm. don't have the same kind of, I mean, there's no way you could have the same kind of community in an actual job because everyone has their own little communities, right? Mm -hmm. And they come together to do this job. And it went from like, I'm playing these great pieces with my friends and then going out to Las Palmas afterwards and drinking <laughs> margaritas with my friends. And Dr. Thompson. Exactly, right? <laughs> to I play this concert and I go home and I just watch Netflix until three in the morning because like whatever, yeah. you know, like it, it yeah. changed. And so it's hard for me to identify with this feeling because it, I just, you know, I, I can sometimes think about something like depression as like not that it exists on a spectrum, <laughs> but that it's like, whatever the worst possible case of depression could be, that alone is depression. Not like it does exist on a spectrum and it doesn't have to be debilitating for you to be able to experience it, although it can be. Yeah. So I would say for sure I was depressed. I'd say for sure, like the reality that I was living in of like my life, this is going to be my life. Like I wanted it to be this joyous thing related to music and it's just a job. Like, what is that, you know? Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, my engagement was like very strained and that was a, a thing. And then basically I lost my job and then I broke up with my fiance, right? And so like two of the biggest things that can happen to you happened to me all within one year. Like it was a rough go of it, you know? Yeah, but right. like that struggle is why my life is 
is why I don't suffer the same way now. Because I have, I, I like made some understandings about what caused some of that suffering. Some of how I was putting all of myself on this job. Some of how I was putting all of my worth uh, into my fiance. And how if when I was with her, it was awesome. When I was without her, I felt like I was in withdrawal from a drug. You know, like that's that I can feel that feeling right. And sorry to get all real, but whatever. Not like I can feel that feeling right now of what that felt like to be away. And we read this book and she she was like, you're talking to me as if I'm like a drug, like you're on this high when you're with me. Like yeah. that's how I interacted with the world back then. And I did not see clearly. I didn't understand like the truth of like. I can't just put my happiness in other people or other yep. things. And what it caused me to do is look inside of myself and see like, you're not okay. Like you're not okay, mm -hmm. you know? And I found my way back to all of this stuff through Christ, Jesus Christ, right? And I'm so thankful for that. And like, that's mm -hmm. how I see the world now. And so through that, there's, I mean, there's a number of ways to talk about it, but from your perspective of like positive images, mm -hmm. like the suffering mm -hmm. that exists, has like a, a like there's a biblical thing that goes along with it, right? So it has reframed my perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I don't suffer the same, sorry, again, this is a long thing, but I don't suffer <laughs> the same way I did then now because of that suffering. And I made some peace with it, right? And I think when, I, when if I were to hold on to that, and if I were to be bitter about that and to yeah. say, this is the worst thing, I don't think I would feel the same way right now. And I think that's like hard. I mean, I, I totally understand like, that it can be hard to let go of something like that. But I, in my mind, I think it would be difficult to heal from some of uh, past suffering without letting some of it go and, and making amends with it, so to speak. But I don't know. Yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah, Acknowledging it, you know? So, Absolutely. All right, that's a lot. See, I don't normally <laughs> do that on my episodes. I don't normally, Aww. I normally just make my own episode and, and Did talk I get about it out of you, Ryan? Did well, I get it out of you? I mean, I don't know, I feel like a good thing to say. <laughs> no, I think we're we uh, can relate in that way. So yeah, for sure. thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh okay. So there's two more things I'd like to talk about. We'll put we'll let you decide the order. <laughs> okay. We can talk about recording studio. Yeah. Or we could talk about the other thing. <laughs> um, I definitely want to talk about recording. All I right. don't mind hinting at the other thing because it's slightly tied in. Okay. Yeah. Why don't you just tell the story in in the way yeah. that like okay, so let's set the stage and then you can okay. pick up the story from the stage is you have been in St. Louis for X time. What is that length of time before we pick up where the story is? Yeah, um since 2013, I well, I won the job in 2013. Yeah. I started and that's when I started. So I guess wow, it's so crazy. It's 8 years. And so the the story we're going to tell picks up. So you've been in St. Louis for 8 years, just living yeah. the dream. Sort of. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's almost, that's what's, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, we don't have to necessarily get it. But the idea of like, you're doing the job, you're going yeah. on. I played with St. Louis um, just before you got there. We went on tour to like, San, like California. I have a good story oh, cool. about this that I'll tell you after yeah. we get off the, the, I do hear that. the episode. But yeah, I mean, it was just like, it was cool. You know, I, like what yeah. you said about the people. Whew, that's the thing I remember the most. Right. And the horn They're section. Great. They're just great. Yeah. And I remember sitting section, I know. behind the horn section. It was pretty cool. Um, <gasps> but yeah, they're just people, a beautiful people. So damn nice. I don't know how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> eight years were there. Uh, just pick it up. Let's see where, yeah. where, see where we go. Yeah. So I guess I moved here um, Yeah, in 2013 to start this job in the fall um, of that year. And 
it's going really well for quite a long time. Um, and, you know, got opportunities to solo in front of the orchestra, Shasti Piano Concerto, just some really kind of fun repertoire, some piccolo trumpet solo stuff. I mean, it, it was really, um, it's been enjoyable. Um, I've seen different music directors come through, which has been um, an interesting um, but a great learning experience as well. Um, and how different people, you know, uh, drive the orchestra differently, you know, mm-hmm. um, when it comes to everything from marketing to touring to recording and everything, you know, um, it directly is affected. Um, so, yeah, going along for a while and <laughs> had I, um, yeah, I was, I've been, actually been in two car accidents um, since uh, since I moved to St. Louis and I'd never even been in a car accident <laughs> since I moved here. I just want to be super clear. <laughs> um, I... <clears throat> uh, the first car accident, I was I was driving to work, um, and uh, I was uh, rear-ended by a stolen vehicle um, on Grand, which is the street that Powell Hall is on. And, oh my gosh, my heart's racing just telling this story. Um, but I, uh, I just was slowing down to a stop sign, and the person behind me did not. So it's as if the stop light didn't even happen. Um, and so smacked the back of my car and then kept trying to drive through traffic. So tried to tried to get out of the situation and hit several other cars in the meantime. I mean, we're talking like straight out of the video game Grand Theft Auto. Wow. Um, and so I was like, this person must be having a heart attack of or like some physical problem is happening to this person. I've never seen someone drive so sporadically. Get out of the car. Three guys get out and they run in down to the subway station and leave the entire scene. Um, and so that was the first. And I was on my way to um, actually to play, uh, I think, taps um, for a major donor for the orchestra. So we weren't even in session. Like it was July. You know, it wasn't when the orchestra is typically playing. Um, and uh, that's kind of the start of um, a slightly annoying spiral that I've had. Um, with my playing that I can I can talk about, but not in its full processes yet because I'm still kind of trying to figure out, um, you know, how it is that um, this has affected me, kind of in the way that we're sort of describing. Like, I'm trying still actively to find some gratefulness around some of this stuff. Um, and I have to say that I, I think I am... <laughs> I want to say this with my entire heart. I actually think I'm going to be a better trumpet player. Um, I can almost get emotional saying that um, Mm. because uh, it's made me uh, not just show up and play and work hard and work through things so that I can memorize every small little leap and bound that I need to play on my trumpet, but I've kind of reassessed my playing in a way um, I... um, I've been very grateful to be working with Jan Kagaris, um, who has been known for helping people kind of retrain um, in some way uh, a, a part of their playing. And um, she's been uh, integral for me in this process. Um, I've always approached, I think, the trumpet in a slightly muscular kind of way, um, uh, for certain in a lyrical way, because that's how I hear music, but in a way where I think I had small calculated steps as to how I made every single movement. And um, now I'm finding a lot more freedom having spent um, some time focusing on the actual product that I'm putting into the instrument. And um, I, you know, I feel like we could probably have a whole nother podcast about this. Um, But, you know, I I truly believe that uh, the easiest, most efficient way for me to play the trumpet um, is to come from an approach where it is of moving air um, and not through um, <clears throat> uh, not through uh, you know, 
active vibration um, and uh, active inhalation and active controlling of the instrument. Actually, I've done everything I can to let go of those constraints so that the one um, factor that remains is that it's constant air behind everything. And it's been, it's just blowing my mind. Like, I think that there is a, there's an opera, there's a chance that I have been playing this way always, but in a slightly more hybrid kind of way, um, where I could, I could really use this in my lyricism, but didn't always use it in other, other parts of my playing. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, it's been eye opening to, um, to discuss, uh, people's approach, of the trumpet, not just because this is how someone did it and this is how I think I need to explain to you how you should do it and then translate it and then try and make it work on your instrument, but truly it's like the physics of the trumpet. Mm -hmm. Like, this is how the instrument works if you just want to know it from the basics and how that has brought so much peace to my brain um, when it comes to, like, sitting down and producing now because I don't think it's like, well, if I just, you know, get the mouthpiece on my lips just right, then I think the note will, you know, come out the way that I want it to because that's how I practiced it. But it has less to do with getting a bullseye and more to do with, like, um, letting, truly just, like, letting go of that control that you think that you have on the instrument um, and how that can actually translate into much more beautiful music. Um, can I when share it's done. With, Sorry, can I yeah. share with you one thing that I, yeah. I'm curious if you agree with this statement. I've started yeah. to turn my practice and my trumpet playing into, like, I, I did a lot of stuff with Excel spreadsheets, and so I think about uh-huh. it as an if-then statement. So yeah. I think if I do this, then this sound happens. So it's from, like, a much more, like, process slash, like, production oriented thing like if i keep mm-hmm. my air forward mm-hmm. response yeah. happens or yeah. if my air is consistent mm-hmm. things are not interrupted mm-hmm. it, it feels a little bit like that's what you're talking about and it's cool yeah. to talk about it because i believe yeah. very deeply yeah. and this is being like we should understand how our instruments produce sound so mm-hmm. that we can fix problems when they arise yeah. like what are what are the basics of it it sounds a little bit like that's what you're saying but i'm not trying yeah. to confirmation bias myself it's just exciting to hear you talk about it yeah i mean i think the most accurate thing and it's it's hard right because you can say yeah forward air but like oh it still doesn't mean everything it needs to to the, someone listening to that but it is what it feels like to me um that's different than how i used to approach the instrument um uh, I think that there's been two, for me, maybe two or even three different elements of things that I've focused on. One, which is the moving of the air apparatus. So the, um, when, when, you know, inhaling and thinking about it, not as an active and now I'm inhaling, but actually as a release so that your body is naturally taking in air instead of actively forcing it to, because I don't believe that you get your, your best inhale that way. Um, so there's some training going on there. The second category um, is the awareness of the back of my tongue and how um, that slows down the airstream that um, comes out of my mouth sometimes prior to the, the air even meeting my instrument. So I've now slowed down the air before it's even hit the instrument. And so being aware of what that part of my apparatus, you know, my trumpet apparatus is doing internally. And then, um, and then the last one, which is, uh, for me, it's been, um, you know, this is just so technical. I hope it's okay. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's been a bit of my top lip, um, and how it, it doesn't always allow the air through. Sometimes it wants to actually like, 
even borderline curl under, mm -hmm. and in a way that um, doesn't allow the lip to naturally vibrate in the most beautiful way. And that's what we have to remember is that's kind of what you're hearing. You're hearing the air moving across the instrument. You're getting a sympathetic vibration um, from the instrument causing your lips to vibrate, and that's the sound that you're hearing. If you're restricting any part of that process of the air moving, then it's going to affect your sound. And so maybe that's a quick overview yeah, of some deeper of, than what of I was the highlights. About. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, we were talking about the um, St. Louis Symphony is how you started. And so, you know, I've it's been um, some years that I've been dealing with this um, now and I'm excited to hopefully, you know, get on. Um, a podcast someday really soon and, and you know, explain to everyone that I have it all figured out. <laughs> um, but uh, in the meantime, you know, it, it's been it's been challenging because, you know, I, I love music so deeply um, that when something was, you know, even temporarily taken away from me that I love so much, it was my musical voice. Oh, gosh, things, you know, the... The sadness, truly, that it caused and the grief. Like, you're trying to practice an instrument you're currently grieving, you know, like when you're injured like that. You know, it's almost impossible to try and heal from something from that space. Um, and so, yeah, the first step for me was, you know, separating myself from from the instrument. That had to be step one so that I wasn't grieving myself, <laughs> my internal self. Mm -hmm. um, but then also, you know, spending time... Um, accessing other art forms um, and truly trying to find inspiration in other ways and other ways that I could make music while I was healing from this. And it has brought around um, a love of different types of music that, yes, I think has always been brewing, but I never really gave myself the opportunity to access. Um, for many reasons, one major one being that I had one focus, which was to win a job in a major symphony orchestra. Um, and as exciting as that is, and as proud of that as I am, that's not the only thing that I do um, now, which is, is, I think, been the therapy that I have needed. Um, I, during this time, went back and took some audio engineering courses. Um, I haven't, I already have two degrees in music, so I didn't really necessarily feel the, the, the desire to get yet another degree, but did all the coursework for all of that um, and have found myself a mentor here in St. Louis. His name's Carl Napa. Um, he was for many years uh, Nelly's lead engineer and producer at Dirty Studios um, here in St. Louis. And uh, wow, he's opened up a whole nother world to me. Um, when I was younger, I had fun small projects. Like when I was at Northwestern, I like recorded Ethan Bensdorf's recital. Like I would go around recording recitals for people and help them create that. And that was the extent of it. Um, and then went into this career, right? And then just kind of forgot about it. Mm -hmm. But now that I've had some time to focus on other passions, um, that's been a huge one. Um, and I, uh, started this project with Liam Day uh, recently, um, which is a song set by Defia. Um, he or had it, um, had them arranged, or he arranged them, sorry. And um, he had a couple people write some, uh, you know, preface in it, Mark Markold and stuff. So it's been, it's been a neat project to, to connect with those people in New York um, over it, but also um, to finally use all of the e all of the years that I have spent recording myself and listening to, um, you know, what I think should be said musically, um, I suddenly now have, from a slightly more like producer's style uh, standpoint, have the ability to make some 
um, what I th- hope <laughs> um, will be very effective musical decisions for other people as well um, in presenting their music on recording. Um, and so I've been talking with a couple people. Um, mostly the stuff that I kind of want to get into is uh, cross-genre styles of music. So my mentor is from a hip-hop background. He does everything. You know, he does. Uh, he's about to release a really incredible jazz album um, with a local artist here. And uh, that's been just so neat to see all the different... So I'm meeting other musicians by being in the recording studio. I'm experiencing a, a great amount of... Um, uh, you know, hands-on experience in a ma- like a major recording studio. So I'm assistant engineering, um, and you know, he will actually even call upon my ears sometimes um, with different types of intonation or different types of timing things. And I I didn't realize that all of the years that we put into this can be used in other ways. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, it blew my mind, and it still does. Um, so I'm looking forward to lots more collaborations in that department. Um, moving forward, um, it's been a great start. Um, and, uh, it's also encouraged me to, uh, during, during COVID, during this whole time, you know, it's, it's not been just me because I had an injury that hasn't been able to work. It was literally the entire world. Um, and so I had access to a couple, um, other musicians that wanted to, to make music. And now I'm actively, um, singing and songwriting with, uh, the assistant principal percussionist in the orchestra in St. Louis symphony. And, um, we're hopefully releasing some music that I've written, um, over the course of the past couple of years of my life, which I will admit have been some of the most challenging. Um, so it's been therapeutic to levels that I can't even describe, um, to you, uh, having the opportunity and time to just experience this uh, other musical endeavor Um, and totally can't like, I cannot like tell anyone enough just how important it is that if you have inklings towards other passions in life that, you know, to be aware, you know, the full circle of it, since we talked about balance at the very beginning, just being aware of how much of the one thing that you've chosen to do every day, like what of that, you know, pie graph, how much of it is it is it taking up and can us even just a small portion of it? Because I'll admit, I've even had endless therapy sessions also on, okay, Karen, so you really love the trumpet and you're focusing on getting better at the trumpet, but like, is there a chance that that doesn't have to be a hundred percent of the graph? Like, do you actually have to sit in a practice room for six hours in one day trying to retrain this element of your trumpet playing? Or can you do that for a couple hours a day, do the thing that feels most therapeutic? And that's basically how I've done it. I've used I've used musical music as therapy while I get back to music, mm. um, but in a different facet. Yeah, I've learned my electric guitar is sitting right behind me. I'm in my recording studio that I built um, during COVID, and um, just giving yourself the opportunity. And for me, this is the canvas that I wanted and needed. So um, I, but you know. <laughs> When I even talk about all of these things, I have to, like, remind people that in some way I had my own miniature (laughs) COVID prior to Mm -hmm. it because I had isolation from my job. I had – I separated um, in my marriage, um, and I uh, 
and I had uh, didn't have access to my trumpet the way that I used to. And so I was trying to truly just take care of myself the best way that I could. And this is what ended up happening. So when COVID actually hit, I had already, it's almost like I was used to it <laughs> in yeah, some wow. way because I had time out of the orchestra because of the injury. So, um, yeah, you know, when when we talk about being grateful, it's like a whole bunch of really terrible things has now turned into... Ideally, you know, a, a platform of music that I didn't know that I was going to have access to um, at, at any point in my life or even allow myself truly is really like allow myself the time to have access to it. Um, and so, yeah, there is definitely some gratefulness for all that. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I don't really, you know, this happens every now and then. Now I don't really have anything to say to that. You know, I don't have any follow up questions. It's pretty clear. Um, I'm so happy to hear that you have. I mean, I feel very similar in my own life, you know? Like, I have this other outlet now of, like, content creation, and I'm thinking of how to do workshops to... Yeah. A lot of what you've talked about, actually, like, there's there's a workshop I have an idea for where I want to talk about how to have, like... Like, what does your commitment to your instrument mean? How can that produce joy in your life? How does delayed gratification work into this idea? How can we like expect these kinds of things working in some of those ideas, some peak performance things, right? Some statements of mm -hmm. affirmation, making sure we have like good relationships with our self-image and, and other types. And then this own like organizational method I have, right? To help tie it all together. Because mm -hmm. I just, I, what I hope is that we can, I can share some of the things that I care about that can help people have a relationship where they know that what they're doing on their instrument is moving them forward and they can have rest in that. Mm -hmm. And that it's not like I need to do as much as I possibly can. And if I'm not doing hours and hours and hours, but rather I'm showing up doing the work that I need to do over the long term. And that's actually going to get me where I want to go, but in a more sustainable way, very similar to what you're describing. Like how much do we actually need versus how much do we feel fear to do? Yep. Like that kind of question. And yeah, I'm so excited for you that you have the ability to like interact with music through all of this in a different way that's going to produce like that much more joy, hopefully, in your life. That's amazing. That's a great way to put it. It's a great way to put it. It's what it feels like. Thank you for recognizing that. It's been a haul. I mean, I think, you know, it's so neat to just take a moment and just get a small snippet of someone's life because we all get it. We all get that through like social media and whatnot. But it's just it's lovely to sit down and truly talk to you, Ryan. I feel mm. like um, everyone has been going through a lot and it's it's it feels like you're creating, you know, the community that we were sort of describing by by doing stuff like this. So thank you. Yeah, you do your best, you know, like. I'm going to be completely honest. Like what I've been learning is that I've put, like I just took this thing from trumpet and I reconciled with that. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm, not a, I'm not a trumpet player. I play the trumpet. And then when I started sharing on social media, I started to grow a little bit of a, like a little bit of a following, you know, I would yeah. say on the grand scheme, 6,500 followers is nothing compared to millions and millions, right? <laughs> But then I started to like get some clients to work with me on developing better practice habits. And all of a sudden I can feel myself saying I'm not like at rest anymore because I'm starting to look towards sources of validation and putting things on other people that they didn't do. Yep. But now I'm like upset at this person because it looks like they're doing better than I am. Or I, I'm mad at this person because they didn't sign up with me or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, gosh, it's so funny how this 
you can make peace with this idea and it can still seep in that you're looking for your validation in the things that you do and putting, giving others like the, the opportunity to say, you have my happiness, please give it back. Yep. Like it's, it's crazy how that I know better and I'm still doing it. It's like a life. It seems like it's a massive process of just trust that like, yeah, I'm it's... just going to sit and do this thing that I really believe is the right thing for me to be doing. That's the word. I think it all comes down to your beliefs, right? It's like, do you want to be run by someone else's beliefs or your beliefs? Totally. I think that does boil down to it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, my convictions in that that regard, and I totally agree. I think it's, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the past X amount of time, like I've been working with this uh, woman named Karen, and she's helped me a lot in, in sort of exercising some of this stuff. And, you know, that's, it's been a big part of me growing in my, in my faith, I believe. But one of the things is I started to realize, like, I'm able to now like make decisions on my own about what I think about this or that, or what kind of relationship do I want to have with that person? How do I want to be in this world? Not how is the world treating me or what is the world giving me, but how do I want to be in this world? And ideally speaking, if I've made that choice, circumstantially, it shouldn't change if I've decided I want to put positivity in the world and it shouldn't be like a thing where I do it for a period of time. And if people don't start to respond to me, they don't deserve it. Or I I have to give up on that and do something else, but rather this is actually who I've decided I want to be. I'm just going to be that person. And hopefully you can help some people along the way. Yeah. And that you've spent a long time discovering that too, you know? Yeah. Who? You, yeah. <laughs> Wow. We are, I think we're in a very similar part of life right now. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I'm just, I I feel again, like I, I, you know, not in this, it's hard to say because like, I don't see my suffering in that light of like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not necessarily like bring on the suffering. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Like, I'm not trying to say I'd wish to suffer every day of my entire life. I'm not a masochist by any means. <laughs> but I used to ask these questions to podcast guests. You know, if you go back about like 50 episodes, mm-hmm. you'll hear me ask almost everybody, is suffering necessary? Mm. Like you'll hear that. Like I was working through it in yeah. my podcast, you know, and like yeah. I've sort of come to like, I don't know if suffering is necessary, but it can produce yeah. beauty it can produce, you know, the idea of like a butterfly suffers in the cocoon. And if you open up the cocoon, it'll actually die because it needed to struggle. It needed to suffer so that it could grow strong enough to be able to survive. Like nature has a lot of, right, a lot of parallels like that. Well, and it's, I mean, you know, suffering can be the catalyst that might be necessary in life. Yeah. But it doesn't, yeah. It sucks, I still don't wish it on anyone. (laughs) That's what's so terrible. And like, you know, this is a fascinating part of the conversation for me too, um, is a lot of people, I think a lot of people's platforms can be like, I want to do what I can to help people not go through what I went through. But then it's like, well, what you went through is how you believe what you believe now though. And I remember started thinking like, instead of trying to prevent people suffering, I think I'm trying to just think, how can I encourage and support them in their suffering? Because they need, people need the opportunity to grow into who they are. And if we relieve them of their suffering, I mean, no better example comes from like children, like children need to struggle so they can Mm -hmm. figure out that they're more than they thought they were. If everything comes easily, the second that they hit some sort of struggle, they're like, that's not for me. Or they're mad or they want someone else to like, 
the the idea of learning I can mm-hmm. if I if I struggle and I like that's a hard thing as a parent to be like I'm not going to save you from this like you're going to cry all night long cuz you're mad at me cuz I didn't let you do something but there's a reason for it you know like it's I don't know that's like a the best example I can find ultimately me not saving them from the suffering causes growth and I'm not saying I have it all figured out by any means either but I think seeing suffering as a possible avenue catalyst, as you said, for growth, I think is a beautiful way to try to frame being in the middle of suffering, even though you may not be able to see it. And then also probably recognizing that if you, if the, if the goal is to help someone avoid your suffering, I mean, that we have to remember that your journey to the goal might not be the same as someone else's either. So you might also be being affecting their ability to find their path because you're giving them your path. And I think that that can be an issue as well. I totally agree. Yeah. We're like sort of, we are happy with the thing that we're doing and we are like, this is good. This is right. Do the, yeah. This so is the way. Like, you should try this thing that I'm doing. And, and then to- that takes out the creativity for that person and then closes down their like, portal towards compassion for themselves. Yeah, because they're not listening yeah. to what they actually need because they're just taking your key Well, it's interesting, it. right? It's interesting because if someone asked me to be creative when I was 18, I would have been like, huh? You know, like I actually needed someone to give me like some amount of direction. I've read this in a book recently that I think is so spot on that when you're at this age where like anything is possible, like someone kind of giving you a little bit of an idea of what you could do. I just think the idea that like, you don't always have to do that thing. Like I established myself as an orchestral trumpet player, whether I am that for the rest of my career or not, is not really that, it's like, that's for me to choose. And I feel empowered to be able to make that choice. But I think before this, I would have thought, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life because I decided when I was 20 years old that this is what I was going to do for the like the being empowered to say, you know, what, I'm going to follow this path right up until the time it feels like it's not right. And maybe I'll then explore something else. And if that never happens, good for you. That's awesome. But that's not been my experience. Totally. So, well, Karen, I have to record my daughter's this the competition she oh. plays piano and she's got a competition. So I got to go record her on that. So oh, I that's exciting. Got to let you go. This feels like a, a decent stopping point. I, I am yeah. going to call. I need to have you back on the podcast again. This has been amazing. <laughs> Heck yeah. We'll, we'll talk about more difficult things. <laughs> well, maybe I'll, it'll be interesting, you know, if we ha- have you back on in like a year, right? And then just yeah, talk uh, about how some of this stuff is manifested. That might that's be That's actually a, maybe a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Part one, part two. For sure. Um, <laughs> I'd do that. Okay, before we do the little closeout thing here, oh, I guess this is the closeout thing here. Um, if people are interested in connecting with you uh, to say thank you for your story, maybe for uh, you know just hearing your story, you telling it to others, maybe lessons, maybe you know audio engineering type things or whatever it would be. What are the best ways for people to be able to do that? Yeah, so a couple of ways. Um, I have a website. It's kbliz. Dot com. You're so um, cool, and- by the way. <laughs> K-Bliz. <It's> so cool. <laughs> uh, so that's the website. Uh, my recording label is TowerGrowRecords.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram at KBlizzo and at Tower Grove Records. 
um, yeah, follow me on social media. I'd really love that and love to connect with uh, anyone. Um, I'm trying to put more exciting things up on my uh, Instagram for Tower Grove Records that are directly related to my musical endeavors um, because, I don't know, I guess we need two things. Two, you know, we need a personal life and a professional life. So that's that's where I'm going with it. But so I hope uh, I hope to connect with everyone that way. I'm going to follow you right after this. <laughs> yes. um, so if anybody needs to get in touch with me, uh, you all know how to do this. It's the 105th, 106th time or whatever we've said it. But um, you can go to thatsnotspit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a rating and a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share it on social media so other people can find and hear this episode as well. Karen, thank you one more time for being on the episode, having a chat with me. It's been a real pleasure to be able to get to know you a little bit. It's been inspiring. Thanks, Ryan. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing. And we'll see you next time. Hello, 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 That's Not Spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. I find that unless we're in the dog days of summer, one should never underestimate the power of a good scarf. Scarves are wonderful accessories to add to an already killer wardrobe and are comfortable in both cold and warm weather. There are scarves with color, scarves with patterns, scarves that can be tied any which way you want. I myself usually find my neck wrapped in an infinity scarf. Whichever scarf you choose to use, please accessorize responsibly and remember, shh, don't.